Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. Does Spain wrestle with its imperial legacies in a similar way to Britain? How important has monarchy been to Spanish unity and is the narrative of a long decline a myth? In this podcast, Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Brief History of Spain, talks to the critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, about the grandeur, instability and endurance of the Spanish nation. Amongst other concerns, Spain is focusing on the historic legacies, the flight, or so it seems, of Juan Carlos, uh, now spotted at Abu Dhabi, uh, the removal of Franco's remains from the Valley of the Fallen and uh, uh, his reinterment in a municipal cemetery. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black, is modern Spain coming to terms uh, with its history, or... Uh, like in many countries, is, is, uh, are these debates a sign of, of a country that is not at peace with its past? Well, I don't think any country is at peace with its past. <laughs> I think uh, certainly any country that's had an interesting past. And I think that in a sense, when one uses that phrase coming to terms with the past, it's generally a question of debating the present. Um, we see that in Britain, where there's a lot of noise, but very little light thrown on the empire, for example, by the debate about it. And the same, you won't be surprised to hear, is the case in, in, in Spain. I mean, Spain itself, as you will know if you've been there, is a large country. Uh, it, had, it, it, in a sense, is an amalgam of what for a while were different states, uh, very different geographies. Um, and uh, it's not surprising that history has played out there um, in terms as it usually does with uh, political, social, ideological divides, tensions, and that these reach to the present day. And in a way, um, it, it, the, uh, in a sense, the identity politics of the present often draw on ammunition from politicizing the past, and that's the nature of, mo- of the modern world. In Britain, a lot of the focus is about imperial legacies and, of course, in particularly that of slavery. How do modern Spaniards reflect on the imperial legacy of what was at one time the largest empire in the world? Well, it's not as urgent an issue in Spain for most Spaniards as the British counterpart. A number of reasons for that. Um, partly uh, the differential pressure from immigration, uh, partly the way in which uh, much of the empire, the largest part of it, uh, in both population and size, uh, broke away in the 18-teens and 20s, whereas in Britain the counterpart is the 1940s, 50s and 60s. So there's a very, very different or more distant imperial past Um, And I think it would be fair to say that although there are issues to deal with empire, most of the contention in Spain very much reflects and relates to uh, to issues, to divisions, to conflict um, in the metropole, in Spain itself, um, over the last um, 220 years. 
Is there also perhaps the reality that the more recent legacy of Franco and the shadow his rule, which ended in 1975, still casts, is perhaps a more immediate source of historical controversy? Well, it's certainly a more immediate source of historical controversy, and obviously it plays out through different families, different communities, different political parties. Um, I mean, you know, the same thing was true for England in the aftermath of civil war, but civil war was back in the 1640s. Um, you could argue that in France, the debate, the legacy of the revolution uh, went on being a very powerful and potent image to the mid um, 20th century and indeed is there again you could say so I'm not sure that the Spaniards are in a in a uniquely dire situation but yes I mean the the legacy of the civil war is significant I mean what's interesting is that the um, if you know and whatever one says about it is going to be contentious and i try in my history of spain to give the voice to different of opinions but i think what one could say is that in the period from um, 1910 to the present so that's 110 years you have seen um, the failure of a number of different political models first monarchy then the um, uh, politics of the 1920s and 30s, you know, Republican politics, then um, the failure of um, the Francoist system and not only uh, to sustain itself, but in many senses it's sort of the, in, in terms of the cultural and social changes in Spain in the late 20th century. And more recently, I you know one doesn't like to say this, but there are serious and very major strains in um, Spanish politics, Spanish society at this present moment. So again, as when we discussed Italy, and I made the point that you know, in light of Britain and the issue of Scottish separatism and and such like, we possibly sh should be a bit wary of, of assuming that this makes uh, this makes a country a, a a particularly unique problem. But Spain, it's certainly the case over the last hundred and ten years, there has been a series of political failures and that is a matter of interest and the civil war is the most conspicuous one but it's not the only one and to a certain extent harping on about the civil war allows people the luxury of ignoring or underplaying other serious flaws and faults in Spanish politics and society and that isn't a very popular thing to say but possibly needs saying. Well, I, I want to look a little bit beyond that last 110 years of which you've been speaking about, and I, I, I want to see whether the, the roots of the instability uh, go uh, very much further back. I mean, if we uh, take the longer view, to, uh, really from the period when the, the Moors are expelled from Granada, their last foothold, uh, at the end of the, the 15th century, and then the unification under Habsburg rule in 1516. From that period onwards, Spain is going through a period of extraordinary grandeur, the development of this enormous, genuinely global empire, and the, the, the magnificence of uh, the rule of King Philip II in the second half of the 16th century. And, and then 
by 1700, it already seems to have gone wrong. We, we have a, a French Bourbon on the phone. Uh, and then a century after that, of course, we have the, the Napoleonic invasions. Um, how did it go from grandeur to, to instability so quickly? Right, Graham. Uh, you're not going to like this, uh, but there's been a mass of historical scholarship um, in the last 25, 30 years, um, some of it by British scholars, some of it by their Spanish counterparts, in, which have argued that the decline of Spain in the 17th century has been overplayed, and also that uh, in the 18th century, Spain was you know, not doing too badly. Um, so um, what, ha what went wrong in 1700 was that the male dynasty came to an end and that caused a civil war. Um, what a surprise in 1714, uh, the Stuart dynasty in the, as it were, the, the, the line in Britain goes to a, comes to an end and we have a little civil war in the 1715-16 Jacobite rising and then again in 1745-46. I mean, it's a standard pattern of dynasticism. Spain is still a major state in 1750, 1760, 1770. Charles III, Carlos III, who is the ruler there, um, has, uh, you know, to a certain extent, he's one of the so-called enlightened despots. Spain's not doing too badly. Uh, even some of the imperial possessions that the that Spain had lost in the War of the Spanish Succession had been regained um, for uh, a cadet branch of the royal family. And the shape of Sicily is back again, and um, Naples is back again. So Spain is still a significant power then. Uh, and what one's got, which is interesting, do you remember we had our program which we discussed on the Mediterranean? And one of the things what Spain encapsulates is this question of whether scholars or commentators from northern Europe have exaggerated or uh, mistimed or misplaced um, the uh, problems that affected Mediterranean societies. So you can take different ways of that. Now, one of the things you could say, and you brought out very correctly, the problem that affects Spain from 1808, French invasion, the, in, the placement of a brother of Napoleon on the Spanish throne, and then subsequently, as you know, you get in the 19th century, after the, uh, after the French have been kicked out, you get Carlist Wars, um, you get political instability of quite a high level. So is one of the problems with Spain, and Spain isn't unique here, that there is actually a political narrative that helps to cause or interact with wider failings. Now, the reason I emphasize that is that most academics, unfortunately, have been lazy and reductionist, and they've taken the Marxist or Marxist model and have, have, as it were, sort of reduced things to socioeconomic determinants. But you see, you could stand on its head, that on its head and say, well, if you have political instability, then you have a decline in investment, then you have economic problems, then you have all sorts of issues. So in other words, a classic example of that in Britain would be to say that the real problem in the late 60s and 70s was a failure to contain or control trade unionism, the incompetence of labor, and that that, and that that was what really caused a tipping point for British decline, rather than um, emphasizing so much the economic developments. Now, there are different differences of point of view.
do here. But one of the great problems is that there is this easy, hackneyed account of Spanish history. One of the things I've been trying to do in this book um, is to offer the general reader an account which draws on both my own work, and I've done archival work on the 18th century, but also more general interpretations and reinterpretations by scholars working on Spain. So, for example, if you're looking at scholars, uh, British scholars, you know, a very good scholar on the late 17th century, early 18th century, is Chris Storrs at Dundee, who's written a number of very good books on that period. And I think what one can fairly say is that unfortunately, and this is a real problem in scholarship, that the academics aren't very good at engaging with the wider public, and we'll take that a stage further. They're actively encouraged not to by, in a sense, the pursuit of uh, grants and writing things that have very little public resonance. Whilst general readers, I mean, you know, one can think, for example, of Dalrymple on India, completely get it wrong because they, they go on serving up old stuff which is, bears no real relationship to, you know, research insights. Well, uh, some of the more popular history of, of Spain has, a, has an understandable focus on, on monarchy and uh, you know, the strong rulers, the weak rulers, the young rulers, uh, the, the mentally unstable rulers, and so on. Is, is it, in your view, a mistake to follow the course of Spanish history in this way? So, for example, should we be looking more about to what extent there was a, a, an enlightenment in Spain in the 18th century? Well, um, it's interesting. If you look through, at the perspective of monarchs, and there's a recent book by Malin Newitt on the Braganza in Portugal, you can get insights, but obviously that is, and if you look at his book, that is more helpful, shall we say, for the 18th century than for the late 19th century when the dynasty is, shall we say, not so central in Portuguese development. Um, as far as Spain is concerned, the... Individual monarchs are a matter of fascination. It is not easy necessarily, particularly for the 19th century, which is a period of great political complexity um, and with many ministries, in fact, with a brief Republican period. Um, it is a very complex period. It's not been easy for people to present that to the wider public and make it interesting. And one of the great problems, as you uh, imply, is that people jump. Um, so people jump from, as it were, um, the decline of Spain in the 17th century, you know, as it were, in inverted commas, mad Carlos II. Then they jump on to the failure of the dynasty, the Bourbon dynasty, at the beginning of the 19th century. Napoleon takes over, uh, chaos, confusion, Goya, Wellington, etc. Then they jump maybe to 1898, failure at the hands of America in Cuba and the Philippines. Then they jump uh, generally to the uh, Spanish Civil War. Then they might talk about the transition uh, to uh, democracy. And then they used until very recently to fade out in some account of a glorious modern Spain sort of, you know, in the EU and everything perfect. Well, we can sort of put the whole lot of the last in question marks. But if you're looking at the earlier period, yes, there are practical problems. How best 
to draw out a narrative. What I would like to do and to say to people is if you're looking at the 19th century, what you could possibly do, and you know you can have the same uh, approach if you're thinking about France in this period, is to say that the crisis, which essentially was a political crisis at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, so in France, the Revolution of Napoleon, in Spain, the fall of the dynasty, Napoleon, the Civil War, in, in effect, the, um, you know, there was a Civil War component of the, uh, of the Peninsular War. These create tensions and issues and a lack of, if you like, a, a consolidated, national, relatively comprehensive uh, culture, and they also lead to a habit of a willingness to turn to violence in order to end political problems, and that that plays out through the 19th century and through the 20th century. So the counterpart in um, in France would be the civil war dimension, you know, support for Vichy, the milice against the resistance, etc., during World War Two. And obviously there is a counterpart in the case of, of Spain. And that doing that means that you don't have to uh, necessarily learn off um, everybody who was, uh, you know, ministers in particular administrations, which, as you know, if you're looking at France under the Third Republic, uh, is a hell of a lot. But the same if you're looking at Spain. I mean, if you, the so-called system of the Turno Pacifico, the in which the liberals of the Conservatives sort of ran a sort of alternating system in the uh, under the Constitution of 1876. Well, you know, I mean, it's up to me to know about it because I've written a book on the history of Spain, but quite. Quite frankly, I don't think most people are going to find it tremendously um, exciting. And uh, I, I think the same thing can be said of, uh, you know, of quite a lot in that period. So what I would say is that you, you asked at the very outset about an, a deep history. I mean, what I would say which is, is that this deep history certainly lasted through the 19th century and into the early 20th century. What is interesting is it had seemed to quite a few people that, as it were, a new civic politics in the post-Franco years had overlaid that, that um, systems had been created um, to do with relationship between federal government and regionalism, to do with the fact that the Catholic Church was still in a strong position, but it wasn't in as strong a position in ideological terms as under Franco, etc., um, etc., et um, that it had looked as though those problems to a considerable extent had been overlaid. And what is then interesting is to ask whether what is going on now is a resurgence of older problems, or in fact a new set of problems which is nevertheless using a lot of the vocabulary and ideas of earlier differences. And that's a reasonable thing, and I don't think that's too complicated for listeners to grasp, that there is a contrast there. And clearly the answer is it's a mixture of both. But what that does is make the situation, the relationship, the interplay of history and the present much more interesting than people might otherwise assume. Mm. One of the things that really strikes me about those differences is that in the 19th century there is a real hatred between uh, different political groups 
groups, which makes finding any kind of compromise very difficult, and so we have instability and, and repeated coups. Can you uh, give us a sense of the role of uh, parliamentary institutions, particularly the Cortes, uh, during this period? How strong or weak was the Cortes? How democratic? Well, first of all, it's nowhere near as strong as Parliament was in Britain. But um, if you want to give a counterpart, yes, there are problems in Spain. But if you think of France, you've got, uh, apart from the change of government in 1814 and then again in 1815, you've got the 1830 revolution, you've got the 1848 revolution, you've got the 1870-71 instability, including the commune, you've got uh, Boulanger subsequently and the possibility of a military coup, you've got um, sort of really anti-Republican, nasty, nasty uh, populist movement at the end of the um, at the end of the 19th century, and you've got the development of revolutionary movements on the on the far left. So yes, you have problems in Spain, and you know I've gone through them. And you know, for example, I mean, you know, all sorts of things. Um, uh, the you know these habits of people making what they called a military demonstration or pronouncement, um, and you know, you get as a result of that rebellions and revolutions. For example, you know, 1868, um, and the so-called six revolutionary years, you know, the assassination of the prime minister in 1870 and so on. But I would, I would not want to suggest that as a result of that, Spain is necessarily um, to be seen as a total basket case. That's point number one. Point number two, though, goes back to what I said earlier. There is political instability, and that, I think, does act as a constraint on economic development with all the uh, opportunities that would have come from that, you know, movement from the land, more people in the cities, development of the larger middle class, etc., etc. So I do think there are practical problems that come from a economically lower rate of development, which owes something to political instability. Now, um, uh, I suppose what you could say when you're talking about the Cortes, and of course it's it's not unique about this. You know, there are you know liberal constitution of 1869, for example. Uh, you know, tolerates other religions, all sorts of things, civil marriage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, the constitutions that they produce often sound good, but the problem is that as with you know modern constitutions in the post empire of britain um and as we are well aware um, there's all sorts of constitutions that sound good but don't necessarily find it easy to ground themselves i think that's uh i mean where i think there was uh, a degree of progress is that in the 1870s the beginning of the 1870s which were very difficult uh, when you got you get to this sort of process of the liberals and the conservatives playing a kind of buggins turn um, and you know linked to that universal male suffrage is introduced in 1890 i think spain has got by the early 1890s a degree of great stability, and then yet again things go wrong because they get involved in this war of 1898, which is called, in, you know, the disaster. Spanish prestige is shattered. There are demands for regeneration. Spain is seen as a weak power, and you know, it's classically this is the case. You fight a war which 
you do badly in, and it creates a political crisis. Again, you can think about uh, the impact of Algeria on the Fourth Republic of France. Um, so, and, and you know, you could actually say these are discretionary wars. The Spanish government could have looked for a different politi- political solution in both uh, Cuba and the Philippines. Um, so, I think that you know, failure in 1898 creates problems. But then again, Spain stays out of World War One, And I think that's quite significant um, for uh, it avoiding some of the problems that affected other governments of that period, which either because they were defeated, Russia, Germany, Austria, Turkey being the quintessential uh, examples, or because they were successful, but the strains of the war were acute. Italy is an example. Portugal is an example. Um, had enormous problems. So um, you know you can make poor choices, but you can also make choices that are that are that are wiser. And you know there are aspects um, of the early 20th century: um, spread of public transport, electrification. Um, the um, you know there is a degree of progress. You might not like that word because it implies history should go in a different direction. But you know Barcelona by 1925, for example, is a happy is in a happier situation than it had been 20 years earlier. And what is the nature of that early 20th century capitalism? Is it quite state-directed, or is it uh, uh, much more laissez-faire on a, on a British-style model? Um, it's more laissez-faire. A lot of uh, Catalonia is a great area of economic activity, um, and that um, so that if you like the the living standards, the wages, the uh, profile of the of the public uh, in terms of job terms varies enormously across the country. But then again, I mean that is true of most countries of that period. Um, the um, it's very difficult to know, as with Europe as a whole, what would have happened bar for the severe economic strains of the 1929 um, slump. So, you know, uh, as you probably know, the, the, the king abdicates in um, uh, 1931, Second Republic is declared, um, and the but the Second Republic takes place against the background of acute economic problems stemming from the Depression, and that's that's a real a real uh, issue. And um, I think it's fair to say that um, it's very unclear uh, what would have happened but for that. And I think both the right and the left have unrealistic assumptions about uh, how they can push the country in the directions they want it to go. Well, we, we know, of course, that, that uh, Franco wins the civil war. Uh, a very authoritarian regime is imposed, but he keeps Spain out of the Second World War. Um, a counterfactual for you, if the Republican forces had won the civil war, how might, obviously we only use the word might, how might the course of Spanish history have uh, proceeded uh, in, in the succeeding 20 years? Well, I mean, whichever side won the Civil War, uh, Europe was in trouble because to have had a pro-Soviet government on France's 
southern frontier in 1939 when the Soviet Union was chumming up to Hitler would not have been good news. So let's be clear about this. Everybody emphasizes quite rightly that Franco was a nasty piece of work. He was a nasty piece of work. And in fact, a lot of work has shown that he was actually quite keen on backing Hitler um, and, you know, actively participating in World War II. It's just Hitler uh, preferred to not give him the territories that he wanted from Vichy France. But let's be clear about this. There are practical difficulties with a left-wing, you know, run Spain in 1939 during the period of the Nazi-Soviet pact. As far as Spain is concerned, it's after that, it's very, you know, after World, after 1945, it is very difficult to say. I mean, it might well have ended up as a communist state. Um, Stalin might have taken the view that it was just too far away. After all, that's one of the reasons why uh, the Portuguese far left files to take over the country after the fall of the Salazarist regime in the mid-70s, that there are not a frontier across which Soviet tanks and fraternal greetings can come and machine gun people, as they did in, say, Hungary in 1956. Um, so that might have acted as a practical restraint, but I don't know is the, is the answer. Turning to uh, the Spain after the death of Franco in 1975, um, do you think that it was Juan Carlos's intervention that, that made Spain f- safe for democracy? That, that's the, the popular narrative. Or, or is it a lot more complicated than that? Well, I think it's, a, it's, it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. Um, and uh, it, the particular episode that you're referring to, that uh, uh, attempted coup is a very muddy uh, episode. It's very muddy as to what exactly he was doing at uh, during that uh, that process. So uh, you know, I think one's got to be uh, very careful on that one. I mean, there are a whole host of other factors. I mean, the blowing up of the you know the Basque blowing up of um, of the Prime Minister uh, Carrero Blanco was, I think, a, a, a significant in restricting the options for, um, as it were, a dour uh, Francoist uh, continuity. Um, I think that the uh, interesting thing in 1981 is um, if you look at what actually happened initially, the head of the Valencia military region called a state of emergency, put his tanks on the street, and you know, 200 armed civil guards took over the Cortes, but I mean, that's not um, the whole of the army. Um, And indeed, the contrast is very interesting with the role, I mean, 1981, the obvious comparison is Poland, where the army suppresses the solidarity movement at the behest of the communist government and the Soviet Union. Um, So I think it's a different a different situation and i i would be wary of putting it all to him i i think uh, i i would be very very uh, um you know i mean it's it's known that his confidant uh, general armada uh, proposed that he armada should head a salvation uh, government um uh, and, um, you know, there are conspiracy theories about the coup, about the role of the king. He could be seen as waiting to see which way the wind was blowing. There's debate about the relationship between the fool of uh, Suarez the, um, uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, who had played a key political role um, 
in in the late uh, 70s and the coup. So there's a lot of lack of clarity. What is interesting, and I'm not suggesting the same thing, but what is interesting is the myth-making. Just as the myth-making after 1945 is that Franco sturdily kept... Spain out of World War Two, when you know all the evidence is that in fact he did his utmost to get in on Hitler's side. Um, so all, all of the argument is that Juan Carlos played a key role in saving democracy, which I think bluntly um, is pushing the evidence further than it deserves. Mm-hmm. Well, Juan Carlos, of course, has now packed his bags and having uh, supposedly gone to the Dominican Republic, is, is now at a different palace, the Emirates Palace um, in, in Abu Dhabi. Um, the, the struggles that, that the monarchy now faces, um, along with the situation of the separatists in Catalonia, uh, is this really a, 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 a pivotal moment in Spain's history where um, the institution of monarchy is under threat, the uh, integrity of Spain is under threat, or actually are are these um, situations that with with sensible government can be overcome? Well, I think there are two very different issues here. Uh, I don't think monarchy is as strongly entrenched in Spain. Uh, After all, (laughs) they have had periods of republicanism. I don't think that that is the crucial issue to the safety or stability of Spain. Um, It it would not be impossible to have a presidential system. You you can think, uh, after all, uh, Italy, France and uh, Portugal all manage uh, without monarchy. So you don't need monarchy to to, to run that system. Um, Separatism is a much more interesting one. And um, the question is um, why uh, separatism has ended up as focusing so much on Catalonia as opposed to the Basque country, uh, where for a while that seemed a much more acute uh, separatist issue. Um, I mean, there are tensions about a federal system that goes a long way back. Um, and you will find very, very different opinions in Spain. The difficulty that there seems to be is the um, willingness to accept um, a peaceful exit by a part of of the country. And, you know, we were talking last week when we were talking about the Italians, um, uh, we were discussing, obviously, the, the comparison or contrast with Scotland and you know, let's face it, if if there is another referendum and if Scotland votes for independence, then Scotland will presumably be independent. Um, now, that does not seem to be a, a matter or an approach that many Spaniards outside Catalonia seem willing to concede. And given that that is the case, I can't quite see how Catalonia is going to become independent because within Catalonia, um, it's you know it's fairly evenly divided. Um, so it would need, I think, support from the nation, you know, the, the country as a whole, uh, for a um, a separatist movement to succeed. So I think what is most striking is the serious difficulties affecting the political system at the moment. And it's unclear whether those difficulties are 
going to make it easy for the central government to address problems in the economy. Now, Spain has the advantage that it has in effect, regional governments and those regional governments may well take it in a different, provide a degree of uh, responsiveness that can help. But I do think that there are major problems with the Spanish government. I think that both the left and the right have had failings, to put it mildly, in the last 20 years. And I think the net result of that is that many of these sort of hopes that the Spaniards had for themselves and that other people had for Spain over the last 40 years are looking less less optimistic. The situation is looking more tarnished. So, um, you know, it's, I don't like to end on a, on a disappointing note. And as I've tried to capture in my book, there is a long, enormous amount that is fascinating for the visitor and indeed fascinating for Spaniards about their own country, which is an astonishingly diverse country as well as a big one. Um, and, you know, you go to the Cantabrian mountains, you're in a completely different place than, say, the Marmanor and the, and the shores of the Med. Um, so I think that the, the, it's, it's fascinating to visit, but be under no illusions, there are serious political problems there. Well, Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Brief History of Spain, a great pleasure discussing the grandeur, instability and also endurance of Spain. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.